Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So by the time our millions of listeners hear this, you may be in the town of the World Series champions, Washington Nationals. Or the most disappointed town in, 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 in professional <laughs> you baseball. You know what? Washington needs a win. With all due respect to friends in Houston, like, we need this. Yes. The we Nats, need this more than you do, damn it. That's right. The Nats are the only thing going well in Washington these days. <laughs> They're the only thing we can feel good about. They're what give us hope for the future. And the country needs the national. And that's win. why they were chanting, lock it up. <laughs> my, my, my question is whether the nationals should change their name to the deep state. No. Ooh. <laughs> the Washington deep state. The Washington the deep swamp. <laughs> the swamp. No, that's the stadium name. Oh, I see. Let's change Nationals Park to the yeah. swamp and change the name of the team to the deep state. I'm sure they'll take it under advisement. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the There's No Whimpering in Podcasting edition. Very good. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Yes. Yes. The news of the week. Crying and whimpering. Oh, crying and, and podcasting. Dying like a dog. <laughs> <laughs> Man. I was gonna call heavy. it the I was gonna call it the good dog edition. The like a dog <laughs> the edition. Like a dog edition. What is it with him and dogs? It's so weird. He clearly doesn't love dogs, but he has a thing for dogs. I mean I've I've heard people like describe like, you know, like Use doggers like oh he was he was acting like a dog or he was all alone like a dog. There's someone in my family who says a lot of times we're like what does that mean? But like Trump says it a lot about dogs. I think but as, he means like an animal. But as the estimable Michaela Fogel uh, pointed out the other day, his term for in the the Access Hollywood tape yeah, for, that's was right. I moved on her like a bitch. I and don't think, I don't think that's, that's what, he meant. what he meant by that. Well, it is an incoherent statement. Um, but he does mean it in the way like like I moved on her like a like a stupid person or like a like a weak person. I moved on her in a weak way. Dog. Is that what he, no. he never describes himself? I have as not weak. had enough to drink to unpack the Access <laughs> well, Hollywood. Have some of this. <laughs> Frankly, I don't on. think all the Buna Hobbit in the world is going to make the president's. Somebody's going to write coherent. a PhD dissertation on that tape. Yeah, ten years from now. Well, I am here in the New Jungle Studio with Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittes, and Tamara Kaufman Wittes. Hi, guys. We're all Hi. together. We're all together. Not like a dog. Like the like best dog. dog. <laughs> like we're all together like, like, a, some like happy a pack of puppies. Like the yes. best bunch of bitches podcast <laughs> on the podcast this week, a senior. The, the podcast that is rated E. Explicit. <laughs> no, Already. No, no, no. Not yet. That's allowed. <laughs> Uh, a senior National Security Council official testifies about Trump's phone call with the president of Ukraine. The U.S. military kills the leader of ISIS and an investigation into the origins of the Russia probe takes a turn. Um, so let's start with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman's testimony on Tuesday before the impeachment committees. I guess we can call them committees. Vindman, I thought, uh, was probably one of the more – important fact witnesses so far, maybe the most important fact witness so far, I think, to the July 25th phone call because uh, with Trump and Zelensky because he was listening to the call, uh, I believe, from the Situation Room, which was just totally customary for an NSC official who has this country in his portfolio, uh, and testified that he was deeply concerned about what he heard, raised issues about this internally, and it seems to corroborate in every factual respect the whistleblower's complaint that got this all started, as well as the policy concerns and anxieties that were precipitated by this call. So, Tammy, maybe let me just start with you. Just from a just a quick recap perspective, what stood out to you about what he was saying? And maybe things that, that, that shed new light on or gave new dimension to the inquiry that maybe we didn't fully appreciate before. So I think as each of these officials from the State Department and the White House have come through and given their testimony, layered on top of one another, 
it's become clear, number one, how strong the policy consensus was on U.S. policy toward Ukraine outside of the Giuliani bubble. None of them have indicated that there was any significant debate in the interagency about whether or not the United States should be supporting Ukraine, about whether or not the United States should be giving aid to Ukraine, whether the president should be meeting with the new president of Ukraine, even the assessment of the new president. Um, there seems to have been a very clear consensus. And look, on a lot of issues in U.S. foreign policy, there is a lot of consensus. Some are controversial. This was clearly not controversial. And so I think Vindman's description of Giuliani's insertion of himself, you know, and Bolton apparently describing to Vindman that Giuliani was an obstacle to the policy consensus of the interagency, to the advice everyone in government was giving to the president. That stuck out to me. His ear witness of the phone call, I think, was also very important, not only in corroborating the whistleblower complaint, if we had any doubt left about the validity of the whistleblower complaint, but also in telling us that those ellipses in the transcript represented significant material omissions. And note this because the White House press office, when asked about these ellipses, when the call notes were released, said that just represents that voices trailed off. That doesn't represent missing information. Um, and all you journalists who are saying that are wrong. So once again, you know, the White House is lying to the media uh, knowingly or unknowingly, about the facts in response to direct question. And then we have what was elided, what was left out. And it sounds like what was left out was very specific mention of Joe Biden, of Burisma, in other words, of the details of this quid pro quo. And getting the server back. Yeah, that Republican defenders of the president have been representing publicly, extensively, that the president didn't have anything to do with this stuff. And so I think Vindman, throughout the testimony, is able to demonstrate how specific these quid pro quo asks were and, and how it, often they were repeated. And Ben, I thought it important too, given his particular background as someone who not only is an expert on Ukraine, speaks Ukrainian, has been on the NSC, has been in the military – I mean, we still don't know the details about the, the whistleblower's background, but here you have somebody who is – he's not a dilettante in any way on this subject. I mean, he's about as steeped as you can get. Yes, and he's also an Iraq war veteran right. with a snazzy uniform and a really cool story of American patriotism that makes it hard to dismiss him. There's another important which thing. Which doesn't mean they didn't try. Which doesn't, and, we'll, and we'll get to that. We'll get doesn't, to that. You know, doesn't mean that you don't try but or that the, these group of people don't try. But it does mean that it's very hard to do credibly. And it actually, if you imagine a public testimony by this guy, uh, we haven't seen anything like that since Oliver North went before the Iran-Contra committees. And that was a bad day for the Iran-Contra committees. People forget that now. But there's another important thing about Colonel Vindemann's testimony, which is, as you alluded to, but it bears emphasis, this is a firsthand account of the call. And as Tamara rightly points out, that firsthand account means that the gravamen of it is that the transcript call memo that we have released is the most favorable possible version of events, not it probably not accurate. It does um, sort of raise the question of like if it was selectively edited, like why not edit out some right, of the things right. like the part where he creates right, the, the quid pro quo. The selective editor needs to be fired here because <laughs> um, this is really like good bad cover up work. Yeah. That said, uh, you know, I do think you know at a purely forensic level when you're talking about sort of making the case. You know, having somebody who can actually testify as to the substantive content of the call in a firsthand way is very important. And if you think about him testifying to that and Bill Taylor testifying to all the shenanigans that are going on around it over the previous and subsequent weeks, that is a really powerful combination. And it's going to be very difficult to factually rebut 
among other things, because they're both clearly telling the truth. And so it's a, I, I think it's at a substantive level, it's extremely damaging. I will also point out that, you know, at an optical level, it's also a real, you like you ideally want the person to be, you know, somebody with a history of never Trump activism or somebody who you can plausibly say has animus to the president. And this is about as far from that as you can get. Susan, give us your reactions too. And also take up this question, this, this issue of, that we alluded to, of allies of the president trying to to smear him by somehow questioning whether because he emigrated from the Soviet Union when he was three years old. He has loyalties to Ukraine. Give us your reaction as well to what he said. Yeah, so I'd, I'd co-sign everything that Ben and Tammy, uh, you know, all the points that they just made and, and sort of underscore the deep regional expertise that this individual, that this, you know, opening statement actually demonstrates that this is someone who uh, is incredibly knowledgeable about U.S. interests in Ukraine. And, and there why, aren't many of those in the government. Exactly. And why this, why what was happening was contrary to U.S. national security interests and, and really makes sort of a, a, a key point about that. And, and beyond that, right, it's yet another credible witness. I'm a little bit uncomfortable with the extent to which, you know, military service has become sort of the one uh, sign of true patriotism in the United States. But I'll put that, those, con- those sort of generalized concerns aside to say, this is a very credible person. This is clearly someone who has devoted his life, uh, you know, to service of the United States. There are a few specific things that his testimony um, brings up that I think are potentially consequential. Um, One is that it pretty directly contradicts Gordon Sunland's testimony. So Gordon Sunland said, if all of these people, Fiona Hill was so worried about what was happening with Ukraine, nobody brought it up to me. Nobody mentioned to me that there was a concern. Um, Vindman's testimony says uh, that not only did he personally confront Gordon Sunland after Sunland made a comment uh, to Ukrainian officials about the importance of delivering on these investigations. Uh, Vindman actually says that he confronted Sunland after. uh, And then he said, and then Dr. Hill, Fiona Hill, walked into the room and she confronted Sunland, saying how inappropriate and unacceptable that was, that they should not be involving domestic politics in this issue. So reportedly, according to news reports, Sunland and his counsel went to um, uh, Hipsy yesterday to, quote, review his uh, deposition transcripts, um, which I, I think that might be a sign that um, the committee has potentially asked Ambassador Sunland to please clarify the clarify. apparent discrepancies. You know, if somebody like Sunland has generated actual exposure for themselves, that could be something that, that could potentially be a, a real leverage or turning point in terms of um, how much information he might be willing to make. The second is the significance of these omitted terms in the transcript. Now, it appears Appears from that, and um, then Vidman was saying he's not ascribing a motive to it. They they could have been omitted accidentally, but then whenever he he suggested they be put back in, it wasn't put in, and right he sort of wasn't taking that additional step of saying it was a cover up. That said, um, and, and also the committee has sort of said, well, it doesn't really change our understanding of what happened on the call. No, that said, these are really critical things, right? So the idea that one of the things that was omitted was the Ukrainian president actually referring to Burisma by name. That is an indication that this is not a one-off phone call. This is somebody who knows exactly what the president is talking about, exactly what he's asking for. That's really, really significant additional sort of um, uh, pointing to Joe Biden and and these tapes that I think appear to be a reference to these public comments that Biden made, although uh, are a little bit sort of strange as as described. The fever dream of Rudy Giuliani. Exactly. Um, You know, those strike me as, as actually pretty significant things. And um, I don't think we should be extending a presumption of good faith to the White House as to why those particular details were not included in, in the call memorandum. And of course, the president of the United States came out afterwards and said it was a word for word transcript. Well, so, even though it says on the transcript, this is not verbatim. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Again, the fact that we all know he's lying doesn't change the fact that it's the president of the United States lying. You know, then this sort of subsidiary story, uh, you know, of kind of these smears against Vindman, um, you know, most notably John Yu going on Laura Ingram's show. Oh, and Sean Duffy, 
Duffy, and Sean member, Duffy yeah. uh, and uh, on, on CNN as yeah. well, sort of both suggesting. So Sean Duffy was sort of suggesting that Vindman uh, remained loyal to Ukraine, you know, because it was the country. He, of his he was birth. a very patriotic three-year-old. Uh, exactly. There's um, there's some pretty powerful anti-Semitic tropes potentially uh, sort of embedded within the language that was used there as well. So uh, really, really ugly stuff. Um, John Yu suggesting, uh, sort of making this comment that it sounds a lot like espionage to him. Whenever people sort of said, like, are you accusing this person of espionage? You attempted to clarify, and I'm putting that in air quotes, by suggesting that no, it was you, a Ukrainian official's outreach to Vinman that struck him as espionage. Again, what is being described here is the opposite of espionage. It is individuals, government officials, reaching out to other government officials through official channels to say, hey, these unofficial things are going on. We want to bring it back yes. in. Please the tell us what the policy of your government is. Exactly. So this is, um, you know, it, it really is a completely unfounded smear. I will say it does appear to have crossed some kind of line for Republicans. It has sort of generated at least some pushback from Liz Cheney and others of saying, you know, it's it's appalling to question this person's sort of patriotism and, and we're not going to go there. I don't know that it's uh, profiles and courage, but I, I guess it's uh, more than we might have expected people to do. And so I, that's a, a very, very small silver lining. But Tammy, it does point to that split, doesn't it, between there are people who are saying these kind of outrageous, I think objectively outrageous things. Yeah. And then most people, Republicans who are opposed to those. Well, and especially elected Republicans. You know, I think we saw probably close to a half dozen Republican members of Congress yesterday come out to say, you know, to reject these accusations by you and Duffy and to say we we shouldn't talk this way. But to me, you know, I have to wonder whether that's emblematic of the broader vies that elected Republicans are finding themselves in. I mean, the question that we've discussed numerous times is, you know, why do they stick shoulder to shoulder with this president? And I think that um, the peeling away, testament, witness by witness, the peeling away of the various defenses and excuses that the White House has put forward, the allies of the president have put forward, and that Republican elected officials have seized on and repeated themselves in public. Each of them has been ripped away. You know, the first was, well, you know, whatever the president said on the call, that was just vague. It's not clear. It's about Burisma or Biden. Why do you assume we were talking about corruption in Ukraine? Well, you know, now we know that's not true. It was explicitly about Biden and Burisma. And we have, you know, several witnesses testifying to various dimensions of that. The extent to which, and I think the Vindman testimony is instructive here, the extent to which Elected Republicans are finding that defending the president requires them to engage in character assassinations that are far are far reach even for them in their long political careers. The extent to which other Republicans are being implicated. One of the witnesses who's testifying today in her prepared statement talked about getting repeated calls from former member of Congress Bob Livingston whose lobbying firm was pushing to get rid of Masha Yovanovitch. You know, so I think elected Republicans on the Hill are feeling this fire get closer and closer and closer to their own feet. And, you know, maybe we're beginning to see some hairline cracks in the wall here. I don't want to be too dramatic, but we'll see. Okay. Speaking of dramatic, picture it. You're being chased down a tunnel like a dog. By a dog. By, by a, a dog. really nice looking you're Belgian You're like a dog Malinois. and yeah. you're being chased by a dog. Yeah. So over the weekend, uh, U.S. Special Forces conducted a raid in Syria that killed the leader of ISIS, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Let's talk about first, Ben, let me start with you. Woof. <laughs> Good boy. <laughs> Here's a biscuit. <laughs> Here's your scotch. Here's a scotch bottle. No more scotch for you. Let's talk first about the raid itself and the significance of it, and then we'll talk about the president's response. But I don't, I don't want to let that cloud talking about this significance to, you know, U.S. national security and really to you know counterterrorism operations, but specifically counter ISIS operations. We've talked on the podcast before that while the territory of the so-called caliphate may have been taken, you know, that ISIS as a 
if not quite operational force, certainly as an idea and a kind of ideological and galvanizing force, uh, is real and still quite potent and kind of entrenched into social media. So it strikes me that eliminating its figurehead is not an insignificant event. Not at all. And uh, al-Baghdadi was not a mere figurehead. He was both the spiritual guide and the operational leader. He was, a, among other things, a, an immensely talented organizer under rather difficult circumstances. And he was, uh, with the exception perhaps of, of of uh, certainly with the exception of Osama bin Laden and in some operational senses, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, he's probably the most important kind of policy entrepreneur of the kind of radical, violent Islamist world over the last bunch of years. And so uh, certainly his removal uh, from the scene is a very significant event. It's an event that uh, should be greeted with a lot of joy by a lot of people, particularly people in the immediate region that you know ISIS always threatens to disrupt or control, but also in the many countries in which they conduct operations. And he will be hard to replace. Uh, we have said that before about ISIS. So hard and impossible are not the same thing. And you know, Zarqawi was going to be hard to replace and was replaced. And Zarqawi's two immediate replacements were going to be hard to replace and were ultimately replaced with Baghdadi, who is a more significant figure than any of them. So I don't want to say he's impossible to replace. But he had certain uh, very unusual qualities. One is, you know, he was from one of the tribes that claimed a direct descendant from the prophet, and that has a, you know, a significance. He had a claim that he could uh, leverage effectively to actually be the caliph, that when he declared himself as such, uh, a lot of people around the world bought that and found it moving and were animated by it. That is that is not a large universe of people who can do that. And he really shepherded that organization from a time that it was in a very, very fallow period and people really thought it was gone. And he brought it back in a form, you know, as as Obi-Wan says to Darth Vader, you know, you strike me down and I will come back, you know, more powerful than you can possibly imagine. And that's what ISIS did. And so I do think, you know, as, just as an, uh, an appreciation of talent and, and uh, effectiveness, this is somebody who played an enormous role and who will be difficult to replace. And that means that his killing is a very significant event. So I would agree it's very significant. And, you know, he he had talents that he put to horrific purposes, obviously. And I, I, I think that at the same time, um, perhaps his success in building this organization also means that it will it will manage to survive his demise. Right. We haven't yet seen any formal announcement from or formal. We haven't yet seen any announcement that's authoritatively from ISIS, uh, either about his death, confirming his death, or about a successor. But I would be shocked if they did not have a succession in place. I do think it's worth noting the extent to which, particularly as the United States winds down its direct role in dealing with jihadi groups on the ground in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, the extent to which America's global counterterrorism strategy has sort of come down to a strategy of targeted killing. I mean, al-Baghdadi is someone who's on our list for a long time and someone who's directly implicated in the murder of Americans and the torture of Americans in the Kayla Mueller case. And, you know, I'm not making any argument about the legitimacy or illegitimacy of assassinations as as a component of American policy. But I am saying that if you look at what the U.S. military is doing around the world now in terms of counterterrorism, it's far less direct counterinsurgency. It's also less train and equip others to do counterinsurgency, although we are still doing that. But more and more, it's this kind of targeted assassination strategy. And it's not because we think that decapitation you know, eliminates these groups or the threats that they present, but that we have found it to be a relatively, for us, 
low cost, low intensity way to disrupt these groups operationally, prevent them from effectively planning attacks against us and other major targets. And we can do it without putting a lot of boots on the ground, using technology, using intelligence. And that brings me to my final point, which is that what's clear in the al-Baghdadi story is that we relied on intelligence from allies and partners on the ground. And we couldn't have done it without them. And that's that's true in most of the places where we're trying to kill bad guys around the world. And the disruption of those alliance and partner relationships or the extent to which we are not necessarily seen as reciprocal partners or reliable partners, to me, that has implications for our ability to do effective counterterrorism going forward. Yeah, I, I think this last point is a really important one. And that's, you know, I, I think, look, the, the death of al-Baghdadi is a, a positive thing. The only question is, is it a really, really good thing or just sort of a, a good thing, but, you know, not not necessarily that significant in the, in the long run of things. One thing that's really significant is how close this came to not happening, in part because uh, of the president's very, very abrupt withdrawal from Syria. So one, among the intelligence that and partners that were relied on to get this crucial intelligence were, uh, you know, Kurds and other regional partners that the, um, the President Trump has essentially abandoned. Um, and two, that even though reportedly, according to the New York Times reporting, the president has been aware um, that they were sort of trying to plan this raid and had what they believed was uh, actionable intelligence uh, over the summer, that whenever he made this sort of abrupt decision, it really threw things into chaos. The Pentagon had to move forward, uh, you know, rapidly accelerate the timeline for this raid because they realized that once they lost him and, and once he moved again, they probably weren't going to be able to find him. And so they undertook a raid that was far more operationally risky than they had wanted to, that they had to do it on a faster time frame. And so that is one of the things whenever you see, you see you know, President Trump um, coming out in front of the cameras to sort of claim credit and, and you know, pound on his chest and, and do this sort of macho whatever. That, that we saw uh, last week, or I guess earlier this week, I don't know, I've lost track of time these days, um, you know, that, that uh, this raid was a success in spite of him, not because of him. Um, and so, you know, fortunately, um, you know, no, no Americans were harmed, um, although Baghdadi did, um, you know, sort of in the ultimate cowardly fashion, choose to take, you know, a number of uh, innocent children with him whenever he activated his suicide uh, belt, um, you know, but, uh, but U.S. service members... Um, were, were not harmed, there weren't additional casualties, you know, that that, uh, that was not a foregone conclusion. And so whenever we think about these things, you know, they are all connected to what the president is doing. And, and these moves really can have significant consequences. And, and let's talk about too what the president is doing in terms of the aftermath of this. I mean, you know, I don't know why anybody would be surprised, particularly that in his address to the nation, he would you know, both dramatize the events, quite possibly even fabricate some of them. There's no evidence that anyone can point to of Baghdadi whimpering and crying in the tunnel. It appears there's no eyewitness testimony to this. No, and none of the military people have confirmed right. that account. Right. So the, I mean, that's, the dog told Trump when Trump was giving him the medal. <laughs> clearly, he speaks dog. <laughs> um, I don't know that anybody would be surprised necessarily by that. I and mean, we've seen these kinds of you know demonstrations before and the spiking of the football. And like, frankly, you know. Many politicians spike footballs in the events and things like this. But Trump does this to a degree that is, makes it all about him and praising himself and comparing himself to Obama and why this was bigger than bin Laden, et cetera. What strikes me, though, is perhaps the – maybe somebody wants to talk comment on this the, – the, the political misfire in this is that by taking this moment that should have been an unobjective – an unalloyed kind of win for the president, by trying to turn it all around to him, he makes the discussion about the raid, how he made it all about the raid, and we're not having the discussion nationally that we all just had about why it's significant. So this is a, a very good example of Trump's impulsivity and lack of discipline being self-defeating. So, you know, under the best of circumstances, and I think whatever one thinks of Barack Obama, one can say that his handling of the bin Laden raid was kind of pitch perfect as a uh, matter of politics and actually operational as well, but that's a different matter. 
you know, he handled it in an extremely dignified and restrained fashion, and he got a significant political bounce out of it that was relatively short-lived. So I think you can say under the best of circumstances, Trump may have gotten some political benefit from it for a short period of time. The result of his handling of it uh, is that he will, I don't think, get any political benefit. Now, he wasn't probably the electorate is more riven than it was in 2011. He has less opportunity for growth in public esteem than Obama maybe did. But I do think by going out there and making it all about himself and being a kind of you know, flamboyant jackass about it, I do think he actually harmed himself politically in the sense that, as you say, Shane, we're all talking about how badly he did in announcing it rather than letting him kind of bask in the triumph of the event itself, notwithstanding Susan's point that there would still be questions about whether he had created the conditions in which this was less likely to be effective than than it otherwise might have been. I mean, I, I do think this is an example of the ways in which Trump's pathological impulses get in the way of strategic impulses. So in terms of representations about Baghdadi whimpering and crying, um, you know, Obama did something similar. He just didn't do it himself. So after the after uh, bin Laden was killed, yeah. John Brennan went out mm-hmm. uh, and gave this uh, very unflattering account of the death of Osama bin Laden, including saying that bin Laden had attempted to use his wife as uh, as a human shield, something that appears not to have been true. Uh, the U.S. intelligence community uh, made public lots of information about pornography that they found, right, really in a, in a strategic effort to try and sort of puncture the mystique of this person, right, and um, undermine, uh, you know, sort of their image moving forward. And so, it's not completely crazy for a president to to talk about these sorts of people in a way that is sort of strategically degrading or really trying to sort of knock him down a peg, although Obama understood the importance of a president not doing that and sort of sent out other individuals to do it on his behalf. But, and then had a movie made about it. Right. But then <laughs> the place in which it collided, and to Ben's point, is – The problem is Trump couldn't even do that with discipline. He couldn't even sort of act the way Brennan did of sort of doing what is essentially sort of strategic lying or or twisting the facts, sort of operating in a gray area. And that's the pathological need to make it about himself. And there is no strategic national security purpose for making it all about yourself. And that's the place in which it's so transparent and shallow and, and petty that it's impossible to not understand exactly what's going on, which is Trump sort of trying to, you know, this very, very small man attempting to cloak himself in in the glory and bravery of others. And and it's just transparent and and laughable. Yeah. Whenever I want to release dirt about Shane, I always do it through other people. It's the smartest way. Much, much more effective smear that way. I I also like I, I have to reflect on this with a bit of sadness, too, that part of the reason that this behavior was self-defeating is because of the degree of political polarization, which Trump exacerbates, but he didn't create by any means. So that to the extent that he is the one out there taking credit, it makes it more likely that more people on the other side uh, politically from him will downplay the import of this or will work to change the subject or will work to nitpick what he's saying. And that also derails the national conversation, Shane, that we could and should be having about the implications of this particular death. You know, so I I think, yes, he definitely triggers that. But I do think it's worth taking a step back to recognize that the result of that triggering is that's that's an impulse that exists in our political society, in our political discourse right now. It's not something we should be happy about. And it's not all on him that it happens that way. We all play a part of that. And, you know, in a way, I, I'd rather focus on the dog. Like, can we all Democrats and Republicans agree that this dog did some awesome stuff and deserves a medal and yeah. a happy retirement? The dog's the only one that went in the tunnel, as far as I know. Someone's going to find that dog's secret Twitter account. And then... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Laura Ingram and John Yu are going to accuse the dog of espionage. <laughs> 
He's tweeting under canine. He's, like, he's, he's Belgian, Belgian, you said? Yeah. Oh, she, I see. She's Belgian. A German shepherd? Although yeah. I, I think I saw someone weigh in that it does appear to be male. Just As opposed to fe- well, initial. Oh, my. I, it's amazing that the military Genders could not spectrum. confirm the gender of the dog. National secret. Yeah. Um, I have no segue. Gender dogs. That's secret not dogs. dogs. John Durham. John Durham can investigate the dog. <laughs> and whether he's a good dog or a Russian agent. Or whether he, the dog has a server in Ukraine. Or if the dog destroyed tapes of the raid. Oh, right. he knows how to do that. Um, so the New York Times this past week had a story that I, I, will, I will fully acknowledge was initially perplexed me. Uh, and maybe, you know, uh, you guys can correct my misapprehension. But noting that the investigation in, that John Durham is conducting as appointed by Attorney General Bill Barr is now a criminal investigation into the origins of the Russia probe. And and, and, and Ben, you will, you will correct my misapprehension on this. This is not merely an issue of semantics, but it struck me as – not particularly news that this was a criminal investigation. Not news a, or not surprising? Not surprising or not – I, I did not strike me as necessarily is this a new development because this was a U.S. attorney who was investigating the origins of these probes. He wasn't just doing a an inquiry. Um, so, so spell out why this is significant and exactly what we're talking about here and in what is – we keep saying – we use words like probe, and journalists do this all the time. When I think sometimes we use the word probe as a way of kind of capturing all manner of inquiry, when maybe we don't exactly know what we're talking about in terms of the specifics of a particular probe. So, what are the specifics of this probe? What do we learn from this? Okay, so part of the problem with answering this question is that the broad answer to it is we don't know. But here is here is what I think we do know. So when when the Durham investigation was announced by Attorney General Bill Barr, it was announced as what's called a review. And that means, as best as I could tell at the time, that there was not a predicate for a criminal investigation. Now, to open a criminal investigation, you need some articulable reason to believe that a crime has been committed. And the Attorney General didn't say that he was you know, I had asked the U.S. Attorney of Connecticut to examine a uh, possible criminal offense. What he said was he had concerns about the way this investigation had been opened and and had started, and he wanted he thought there may have been political spying, and he wanted a review of it done. Now, I only know of two earlier cases where there was kind of a review that was not a inspector general investigation and was not a kind of criminal investigation. They were both kind of during the Reno period. And so it was a kind of an unusual event. And so what I think has changed, assuming the Times reporting is accurate, is that some element of that review has generated a predicate for some criminal component of the Durham investigation. Now, whether that means that somebody lied to the inv- – or maybe there's a question about whether somebody lied or whether it means they've discovered that there really was a conspiracy to hide the server in Ukraine and this is – right, which is clearly what uh, – or whether there's some indication that there's some component uh, that somebody may have done something wrong. So they've referred that to Durham and there is now a criminal component of this review. How much of it, who the person is, what the fact pattern is, we don't know any of that. And therefore, it's pretty hard to know whether there's anything significant about it or whether it's just that you ask a U.S. attorney to poke around about something and eventually they'll find some fact pattern that may be uh, criminally investigatable and that that's what happened here. It's very hard to know. And Susan, I want to get your take about it just as a, as a preliminary matter, just so people understand is it the case that investigations just start and then suddenly it's like a switch gets flipped and now it's a criminal investigation? Because I think there's some understanding among people who are reading this is saying like, oh, now it's a criminal investigation. Or it sounds more like what Ben is describing is components or kind of offshoots. 
Yeah, so I, I mean, it, it's a it's a question of how it falls within the definitions under the Levy guidelines, and and basically the fact that it is now a criminal investigation as opposed to something else means that prosecutors can convene a grand jury and most significantly issue subpoenas to actually compel people to speak to them. I mean, that's the actual significance of having a predicate. So I think there's one way that you can read this story and say it's not really significant. So first of all, the story is that at some point in the past, not clear when. There was a criminal investigation opened into some somebody, we don't know who, for something we don't know what. Um, this story was published last week, one of the worst weeks of the Trump presidency in which the Ukraine story was absolutely spiraling out of control. Bill Taylor had come to the Hill to testify. It has all of the hallmarks of a leak designed to change the conversation, give the president some political cover, you know, attempt to sort of divert um, and didn't have a lot of substance to it. And I think, you know, to Ben's point and Shane, your point as well, it, a lot of people sort of assumed it was moving in this direction anyway. So the idea of like, oh, you know, all right, so we're here, big whoop, and you're telling us about it now so that people will sort of freak out and stop talking about Ukraine. I, I think that's one way to look at it. And I think that's all accurate. Um, I think there's another way to look at it that actually is that it's quite significant. Um, and that's that this was the sort of charge against Barr from the beginning, that there was already a an inspector general's review of this investigation. The SSCI had already looked into the origins of the investigation. The CIA under Mike Pompeo had looked under into the origins of the investigation. We haven't seen the outcome of the IG report, but the SSCI and, uh, and Pompeo found nothing there. And so for whenever Bill Barr announced that he was opening up this administrative review, um, you know, there were a lot of questions about why are you doing that? Why is there a need for yet another inquiry into this? And gosh, it looks a lot like somebody who doesn't have a criminal predicate, but wants to go out and do an investigation is using an administrative review in order to go fishing for a criminal predicate so he can predicate an investigation and start a criminal investigation. And so basically, it's a workaround to the guidelines in a way that is fundamentally illegitimate. And I think that's some indication that that's exactly what happened here, that he Bill, Bill Barr didn't have a criminal predicate. He wanted to find one. He found a way to send John Durham out to get one. And John Durham came back and delivered. And the fact that we all expected it doesn't mean that it's not confirmation of fundamental wrongdoing, um, especially whenever we haven't seen things like an IG referral. Now, it's possible that the IG report will come out and the IG will have actually made a referral or there will be some other indication of genuine legitimacy here. Right now, we aren't seeing any indication of that whatsoever. You know, and we're seeing, you know, Bill Barr, I think, gave an interview to Fox News two days ago in which, among other things, he slammed people like Jim Comey and sort of the, the former leadership of the, the Justice Department and the FBI, um, and also said that, you know, he is not in charge of the investigation. Don Durham's in charge of the investigation. Bill Barr has rendered this investigation almost hopelessly illegitimate by personally involving himself in it in just a, a, a highly irregular, highly unusual uh, way. He's traveling to Italy with John Durham, not to mention the fact that Bill Barr is on television commenting on ongoing criminal investigations. That sounds an awful lot like exactly what people like Bill Barr and Rod Rosenstein were awfully concerned about other people having done in the past. So it's a little bit, I don't know, amusing or astonishing to see Bill Barr in the same breath criticize people while he's doing exactly what he accused them of having done. So I take your point about the hypocrisy of that. But I guess I see it also as an indication of what damage has already been done to our perception of the Justice Department as an impartial institution that works on behalf of the rule of law in the United States and the attorney general as the person who is the chief law enforcement officer for the United States. When your attorney general has to go on a friendly television station to say, I'm not the president's lawyer, I'm the lawyer for the United States of America, you've already lost. Like, that's it. And that to me, you know, yes, he created that situation by involving himself in Durham's investigations. And he, you know, went on Fox News in Chicago to explain why he did that. 
But the fact that he had to come out and address those concerns says that the Justice Department, the rule of law has already been damaged. And whether it was already damaged before Bill Barr became attorney general, that may be. We can talk about that. But he has made this problem worse. And nothing he says now, I think, can possibly unstain, you know, whatever is going to come out of Durham's investigation. Whoever Durham is, however good a job he does, whatever, wherever the evidence leads, maybe somebody did commit a crime, you know, but it's going to be tainted. It's going to be perceived as tainted in the public square. And I think that, you know, that's already pretty awful and it's not going to go away. They're going to find a dog named Joseph Mifsud. <laughs> I think if if I had a puppy, I might name it Mifsud. <laughs> just just as a as a marker I, I of the times. I would want to name yeah. the dog Bill Barr so I can say Bad Bill. <laughs> uh, Bill. Let's move on to object lessons. Um, I, I don't have one this week. I actually have a canine you object do? lesson. I do. Ben is very excited about his object. Do you want to go last? I will go last. Susan, do you have one? I don't have one. So, okay, so Tammy and Ben, you get the floor today. Okay, so it was a bad week with a lot of tough news. And, you know, the the one thing that for some perverse reason I found most amusing and oddly comforting coming out of the the weekend of booing the president at a baseball stadium during the World Series and stuff like that was this little photograph after Baghdadi died and the president made his comments that he died like a dog. There was a um, a British tabloid that published He Died Like a Dog as their headline and a wonderful photograph of a little dog on the London subway reading this headline saying he died like a dog. So you can find it on the show page. It's adorable. Oh, my God. It's just all week when I've gotten really down, I've been thinking about this little Jack Russell. Little head like, hmm? Exactly. Like a what? He died like a what? What? <laughs> Is that what happens to people like me? Oh, poor doggy. Not you, little dog. It's nice to let the dogs run around on the subway. That's fun. Uh, all right, Ben. So a few weeks ago, y'all will remember that we had a little mirth on the podcast about the Glenn Livitz. Uh, Suppositories? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, uh, yes. the really important issue of the Tide Pod slash suppository looking <laughs> uh, whiskey Sick. pods oh, that no. the Glenn Livitt was making available in London only and the Twitter controversy that erupted. So the other day, I am getting on a flight to uh, go up to Boston and – the great internet law scholar Kate Klonick, who uh, many of uh, listeners will recognize her name from her writing in The New Yorker uh, and elsewhere about issues of content moderation, tweets out a picture, uh, which uh, you can see here, Ooh, that that's says, so gross. That's like really gross. made whiskey pods to hang out with Nicole Wong and Andrew McLaughlin and others to use to play Daphne Kelleher content moderation bingo. Pray for us. So I, first of all... Uh, this begs sweet. the question of whether these whiskey pods were a thing before Glenn Livett did this. Like, was did this she, a trend? Did she make them in an ice tray? She made them in an ice tray. That yes. doesn't sound sanitary. So I texted her to ask her about them, and she responded by sending me the recipe, <laughs> which is available, and we will post a link to it, at cocktail disclaimer. at cocktailchemistrylab.com. Oh, my. Um, she responds, it was not hard. They were pretty not great. <laughs> it felt like a huge sip of old-fashioned <laughs> exploding in your mouth. Ew. And if you held it too far back, it like exploded down your throat. This woman started coughing so hard, I thought I'd killed her. (laughs) (laughs) LOL. I mean, and then it was over and you had this leftover cellulose-like wrapping you had to chew. (laughs) Basically, it was novelty. Next time, there won't be a next time. I'll do it with a different cocktail. So there it is, people. 
a uh, DIY. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, do not DIY people. Not, non-suppository <laughs> version of the, the whiskey pods. <laughs> I thought these involved seaweed. Well, the, the Glenlivet ones involved seaweed. Apparently, Kate's did not. Not so, available at your local CVS. I just want to say, if you try this, we take no responsibility oh, yeah. for the outcome. No. Uh, nor do we take responsibility for anything that we do or you hear on this podcast. <laughs> CDA 230, man. <laughs> Have fun with your cellulose popsicles. Oh. <laughs> um, that's revolting. But yes. Thank God somebody tried it so we don't have to. Uh, and thank goodness for you. We're at the end of the podcast. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can find uh, Rational Security Dog Thunder shirts and whiskey recipes at whiskeytrays.com. No, no, no we're not going to do whiskey do trays. Definitely no. not. Not for dog But the dog says. thunder shirt? Or... Yeah. Can't you see a rational security doggy thunder shirt? Maybe we that. just need doggy rational security gear in general. I think we could definitely do like some rational security pet bowls. Yeah. I get one for my cats. Rational security leashes. Oh, see, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> we have th- we have things to restrain children. Why not? <laughs> uh, you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please remember to leave a rating and a review. It really helps us out. Our audio engineer this week was Michaela Fogel, assisted by Gordon All. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Music this week with Don- by Donald Trump with his version of How Much Is That Doggy in the Window? Yeah. Very nice. <laughs> but, but it's in German, so it's suspect. <laughs> Doesn't count. Wait, it's not in Flemish? It's in Flemish. <laughs> I looked up how to say how, how, how what does the dog in the window cost in German. <laughs> <laughs> oh, maybe Entschuldigung, be... bitte. <laughs> das Hund in Fenster. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh my God. Maybe Sophia Yang could back it up on Glockenspiel. You know, if any of listeners want to record that for us in German, we will play it next yeah, week. Yeah, who needs Duolingo? Definitely. You have rational security. Just send it in and hit us with the MP3. It in German. It's going to be the object lesson. We will, we will totally for play all. That. On behalf of my friends Susan Hennessy, Benjamin Wittes, and Tamara Kaufman Wittes, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Go Nats. 